Welcome to episode 43 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. Hey, today's guest is none other than Brian Swan out of Seattle, Washington. I've been a big fan of Brian's work for a lot of years, ever since I uh, lived in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, Brian's pretty well known uh, as the creator of the incredibly comprehensive waterfall database, uh, Waterfalls Northwest, as well as the World Waterfall Database. You can say he likes waterfalls quite a bit, and so do I. Um, he also happens to be an incredibly talented landscape photographer and a really freaking awesome dude. Uh, I got the chance to meet up with Brian this past fall when I was in Ridgeway shooting fall colors, and we shared a campsite together for a few nights, and he's just a really upstanding, awesome guy and um, really enjoyed our conversation on the podcast. Uh, we talked about his journey into landscape photography, um, a little twist this week, we talked about his decision not to become a full-time professional photographer. Um, we talked about uh, the Northwest Waterfall Survey and the delicate relationship between the internet and photography locations. We talked about the ever-popular topic of stamp collecting versus exploration and wilderness exploration. And we talked about scouting tools in the age of the internet, including Gaia GPS and Gaia Earth. Um, just another announcement, please uh, consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Um, it's uh, I just got done uh, filling out thank you cards and sending out uh, stickers to the new Patreon subscribers. Um, I really love doing that. Um, I love that people are supporting the podcast that way. And I'm going to continue to ask you as the listener to help support it as well. By my estimation, only about 5% of you actually support the podcast, so... Let's uh, make that 10%. How about that? Um, I would love to be able to fund my $1,000 Landscape Conservation Award, um, which is only possible if people help contribute uh, on Patreon. Lastly, I want to put a, another plug out there for my friend Jack Brower's website services, uh, Wide Range Galleries. Um, he does an incredibly great job building websites for photographers. Um, it's pricey, but man, is that's a slick interface. Everyone I know that uses his interface sells prints out the wazoo, so check it out. Um, hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Feel free to reach out to me on social media, Matt Payne Photography, Matt Payne Photo. And uh, peace out. awesome to have you on the podcast buddy it's good to be here thanks for having me absolutely uh, i uh, i've actually been following your work for um, several years and i was uh super excited to kind of by happenstance run into you at that gathering in ridgeway this past fall and then you and trevor invited me to, to camp with you guys so that was really cool hanging out and shooting with you guys yeah totally totally yeah man so uh well, shit, man, before we get started, like, maybe just tell people a little bit about, like, who you are, where you live, what you do, um, and how you, uh, how you got into landscape photography. Oh, that's, that's kind of a, <laughs> it's going to be kind of a, a wandering story. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm not professional. I don't do this professionally or anything like that. Um, I, I actually work full-time in the video game industry uh, as a web programmer. Um, so photography is more just a creative outlet than anything else. Um, <clears throat> but I kind of got into it, I guess, in a different way than a lot of other photographers seem to have. Uh, so I started out as a kid, like, I don't know, eight years old, nine years old, something like that. Uh, I, you know, got enamored with waterfalls and I would just beg my parents to, to take me out and go look for waterfalls. And, uh, I just started out with like a disposable camera, 35 millimeter film camera. <laughs> and I only took pictures of waterfalls as a kid, you know, through the trees or when it doesn't, doesn't matter how bad the shot was. It just, it was a waterfall. I'm taking a picture of it. Uh, and then I got like a, a cheap 35 millimeter camera, like an actual camera, but like one of those that you buy at a drugstore or something like that yeah. when I was like 11 or 12 or something. 
and just kind of use that, but you know, only waterfalls, tunnel vision waterfalls, waterfalls all the time uh, until <clears throat> uh, I think my senior year in high school when I took a photography class in high school and uh, that I signed up for the class and I got into the class and then I came home and was like, Dad, I need to, I need a camera. You have to go down to the camera store and buy me an actual real camera. So that's how I got my first SLR. And it was just this cheap used, um, uh, I think it was a, a rebranded Yashica. Okay. Uh, but it was like super, you know, kind of an obscure brand that, you know, there's no compatible mounts for it anymore or anything like that. I still have it sitting in my closet. Um. So I learned how to shoot with a DS or with an SLR uh, from high school until college, I guess second year of college or something like that. And then I got my first digital, uh, which was just a, a Canon PowerShot G3, which was you know it's like a high end point and shoot, but it had full manual controls and everything. Um, <clears throat> and at that point, I started to kind of realize that. Maybe there's other things other than waterfalls to take pictures of. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, and and so I just kind of, you know, oh, hey, this, the mountain looks really cool right now. I'm just going to take a picture of that. But it was real casual. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about it or anything because my tunnel vision was still set there. I'm going to spend most of my time on waterfalls. But, oh, yeah, look at these, these clouds over here are kind of pretty. <laughs> take a um, and uh, eventually I worked my way up and I got a digital rebel. And you know, started down the uh, the path of of gear hoarding the digital SLR equipment. When um, I shot with Canon for ten something years, and then switched over to Nikon when I finally went to full frame. <clears throat> but I I guess I have been like legitimately shooting full on landscape stuff for about fourteen or fifteen years now, I suppose. Man, that's crazy and. <clears throat> One of the things you mentioned that's really interesting to me is um, you say that uh, you have no intentions of uh, of doing photography full-time. And I think um, that's a super interesting perspective. I know you and I and Trevor talked a lot about that when we were in Ridgeway. But uh, I was curious, kind of, wh what is that about for you and why do you have that perspective? There was a time, I mean, so I'll, I'll preface and say, my current outlook is I don't <laughs> want to do this full time. <laughs> Maybe that'll change five years down the road when I'm sick of programming professionally. I don't know. Um, but I went to school, I went to college for web design and it wasn't until late last year that I actually finally got my first full time position as a professional web designer for the previous nine years I was working in quality assurance. Uh, and that kind of sucked. Um, but it was, you know, it paid the bills. Sure. So, <clears throat> Uh, so there was a time probably up until about maybe a year and a half to two years ago when I was, I was kind of dead set on eventually going pro and you know, I couldn't really wrap my head around how to do that. Um, but reading, you know, the stories that, that other guys have, posted about their path to becoming professional kind of was pushing me in the right direction. Uh, and I, I tried out doing some workshops, uh, like, uh, you know, specifically for waterfall photography mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As in, in the Seattle were, area. As in you were, you were teaching them? I was, yeah, I was taking them out into the field to, to hopefully some lesser known locations and, and yeah, teaching them how to take pictures of waterfalls and stuff like that. Sure. Um, but most of the, most of the, the students that I had with me were uh, really, really inexperienced. Um, so it was, I don't want to badmouth anybody, but it was kind of like babysitting more than anything else. A lot of these people didn't even, you know, they didn't know how to, to use manual controls on a camera. Some of them weren't even familiar with how to use a tripod. Sure, sure. No, I, I, so I it was. Yeah, so it was just kind of frustrating for me, and I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and then I got together with Ryan Dyer for dinner a year and a half ago or something like that. Maybe not that quite long, not long ago. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, what he was doing and he was telling me about how, you know, it was just taking up all of his time and you didn't have a whole lot of free time to do anything else. And 
it just it sounded like like more grindy work than I wanted to invest in, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, man, so <laughs> I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh I I was laid off uh my job about a week and a half ago. And yeah, I saw your post. And so I'm like facing that myself, like, is this something I wanna try? And it's like the more I think about it, it's like, man, that is a lofty like endeavor just to like pay the bills, honestly. Um, right. But uh, I mean, if you can pull it off, I feel like if you're single and don't have a family, it's probably a little bit less daunting. But uh, man, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I and that that's definitely the advantage that I have is I am single. I don't have a family, so I do have that flexibility. But I would honestly just prefer to use that flexibility to go out and shoot what I want to shoot when I have free time. You know? Oh, for so. sure, for sure. Well, so <clears throat> that makes sense. So. Tell me, tell me a little bit about uh, the Northwest Waterfall Survey and the World Waterfall Database that you created. I know I personally, when I moved to Oregon, I remember going to your website quite a bit just to like figure out different waterfalls and where they're at and, and stuff like that. So first, just tell me like what, I mean, obviously you have a, uh, somewhat of an obsession with waterfalls since you were a kid, but how what gave you the idea to do these projects and uh, um, why did you do the projects? And uh, I guess we can, once you do that, we can move on from there. So I don't remember the, the reasoning behind, you know, saying I'm going to do this. Um, in high school, one of the projects that I had for one of my science classes involved making a web page. And uh, this was back when the internet was still fairly, infant uh it's like 90 97 98 something like that so we you know i made this project for school and i was like okay this is kind of cool uh and i went home and i fired up word because you can make web pages in word or at least you used yeah. to be able to and i just started screwing around and i like you know scanned some of my pictures and my my prints you know and i put them in there and it was like okay i can make a, a neat little web page out of this um and I was already kind of semi-involved with uh, a group of other waterfall aficionados online. We had a little web ring thing going on back when those were a thing. Um, and a bunch of us made just some cheesy little you know, GeoCities-hosted <laughs> right. websites to show off our crappy pictures of our local waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it just kind of I just started growing, you know? Uh, and, and I just posted all my pictures on there and, uh, it got to the point where I was just digging and digging through maps and books and beta and trying to find more and more waterfalls and, um, kind of part of this obsession I had with waterfalls is I'd always been interested in, um, <clears throat> I guess the classification aspect of it. Like if you think of like mountains, uh, we've got we've got documentation of all of the major summits, all of the measurements, heights, you know, things like that, or you know, lakes, rivers. Everything has been quantified, but waterfalls have not, for whatever reason. So like when I first started researching this sort of stuff, the documentation, the information out there was abysmal. There was just right. nothing. And what was what was available was stupidly inaccurate, as I came to find. So it kind of evolved from posting my own pictures to researching the, sub the subject and posting my findings to say this information is actually more accurate than what this encyclopedia says or what Microsoft Encarta says or something like that. Um, so I just kind of snowballed. And uh, eventually it got to the point where uh, a good friend of mine uh, from Vermont, who is probably the one guy that I am familiar with, who is more knowledgeable about waterfalls than I am, uh, we got together uh, when I was visiting some family in Boston. <clears throat> and uh, we decided that we needed to pool our resources and 
so that was kind of where the World Waterfall Database was born from. And so I split off my website, my, my the Northwest Waterfall Survey, into one website, and then the World Waterfall Database became a separate website. And it, it originally started out as just like a list of the tallest waterfalls in the world and the largest sure. waterfalls in the world. But now, now because I have the knowledge to build out uh, a proper dynamic database of all this information, uh, the goal is to just dump every scrap of knowledge that we have on the subject into this website and then eventually open it up to uh, user-contributed sources as yeah, well. Yeah, dude, it's... I mean, I'm looking at Northwest Waterfall Survey right now and it's so cool. Like, the map map tool is just amazing. And I actually... It's funny. I actually built a very similar um, a database and map using a KML file I built of all of the mountains in Colorado. <laughs> um, the yeah. I had built it in, um, well, I built the database in Excel actually, and then mm -hmm. I imported it um, into <clears throat> SQL through a Joomla website that I built. Um, but the system I used to display the data kept getting hacked, so so I <laughs> yeah. kind of I still have the database, but I've kind of scrapped the the um the interface to it because it's like super hard to keep maintained but man it's a fun project so tell me one of the things that i think is an interesting intersection uh between this idea of having this huge database and map and lots of information about all these waterfalls is is the potential impact that can have on those locations if people can find them more easily um, which is may or may not be your ultimate intent, I'm sure, but that's probably eventually like that's going to happen. Like people are going to go explore those places, which is cool. Um, so I'm curious kind of what's your take on, on that particular conundrum? It's that's actually really kind of interesting to me uh, from what I've observed with the impacts of the Internet and the impacts of social media compared to where the information was available previously to that uh so like before i started doing this you had to get books you know guidebooks that's 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 your source for this sort of information and there's there's a really great one for the northwest called the waterfall lovers guide to the pacific northwest that's been around in some form or another for 35 30 well 38 years i think something like that since the early 80s uh, so the information on the waterfalls in this part of the country has been out there for at least that long, at least for some of them. Um, <clears throat> but for some locations, like let's say Panther Creek Falls, for example, uh, when I first went there, the first time when it's, I want to say 99 or something like that is when I first saw it, uh, you know, there was basically no path down to the bottom. The moss was all intact. The view, the, uh, the viewing deck hadn't even been built yet. You just walked <laughs> out to the edge of the cliff. And there, there really wasn't even a trail to that point. It was just like a little, almost like a, a, a deer path sort of thing. But it was, it was more or less untrammeled. And then the Forest Service built the viewing deck because more and more people were going there. But this was still before the internet really became right. the monster that it is. Um, and so I had this information on my website for, you know, 15 plus years now. But I don't think that it really got destroyed and got you know trampled to death uh at least as as it has been until the advent of like facebook and instagram i think those sites because they have much more flexibility or, or visibility <clears throat> uh had a lot more to do with it than any sort of you know ancillary project like mine uh, not to say that I don't get a lot of visitors, I but I don't get anywhere near the amount of visitors as those sure, big social sure, media sure. sites. No, that makes sense. I mean, I think, I mean, it, I would be a fool <laughs> to say that that your site has made a dent in that in that way. But I think it's it's something. Ever since I had my my podcast with Guy Tao, um, I've really I've really questioned my own behavior in terms of. Um, like posting locations or or like writing articles that tell people how to get to a certain location like like I, I feel like while it 
probably serves to help some people in the end i'm i'm like on the fence on whether or not it's actually like <clears throat> worth the potential harm that it could cause yeah and i actually have kind of come to the same realization um originally my intent was you know to document every single location I go to provide detailed directions and all that sort of stuff. But then stories about what's happened at Panther Creek falls and Monte Grotto falls come out. And that really kind of made me think about it. And like, I, you know, I, I don't think I can stop that. Right. Uh, I'm just one person, obviously, but, but I think by limiting the information that I put out there, I could maybe slow it down a little bit. Uh, so I, I made the active decision, uh, a year or so ago that I'm not going to post directions mm. to off trail waterfalls anymore. Uh, anything that I've got on there right now, I'm just going to slowly edit it out as I have to go back and edit each entry in the database. Uh, I'm not going to go and, you know, specifically remove everything, you know, outright. Uh, just because there's <laughs> right. a ton of it and that would be too much work. <clears throat> but, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of interesting how, how my perspective has changed. And I think a lot of other people who are, you know, aware of the impacts that we as photographers can have in locations like that uh, are probably coming around the same kind of conclusions that we have to be a little more ginger about how we're disclosing some of these information, these places and the information about them. Um, actually, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't remember who it was. Somebody posted a picture of uh, a waterfall that I will not name <clears throat> that that Ryan Dyer took a picture of, and, and it got really, really well known. Um, and and so this person uh, posted the picture, not Ryan, some other guy, posted the picture on Instagram, and it blew up, and it ended up on Reddit and stuff like that. And, you know, it got tons and tons and tons of views. And so I get uh, a message and uh, this guy was like, hey, I, you're the waterfall guy. Do you know where Dyer Falls is? And I just laughed. I was like, and so Dyer I had to give Ryan Falls. some shit about that. This, yeah, he called it Dyer Falls because Ryan didn't name the location either. And I'm, I'm super glad that he still hasn't done this because it's, it's a really cool waterfall. And it's not like the funny thing is it's not an unknown waterfall. This is a waterfall that's been in some of these guidebooks for 30 years, 40 years. Uh, so... Because his picture was so awesome, yeah, him and Candace for that matter. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of funny how one one picture can have that kind of impact. Adamus's shot of Monte Grotto Falls kind of did the same thing. Right. That's when that one started to blow up, you know. Um, and you know, there's only so much you can do in those sort of situations, and and there there will certainly be screams of you know elitism when you don't disclose information like that um but you know i i'll just grin and bear it because i think it's probably better to be a little more discreet than to just blab about it because somebody feels entitled to oh, for sure. knowing mean, where these locations I mean, just are the fact that the person called it dire falls tells me enough to know that we as we as photographers do have an impact <clears throat> on locations whether or not we think we do or not it's true like I mean, it's name like people know it by his name. I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it has a it has a not a formal name, but it has a recognized name uh, sure. for those who know where to find the information, at least. But yeah, because his picture was kind of the one that sort of put it on the map, so to speak, that just became what it was referred to. And I don't, I don't think it necessarily stuck. And I don't know if this guy ever figured out where it was. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. But, yeah. I, I, it's a tough subject because I, I feel like, um, you know, as photographers, I feel like for the most part, we want to help other people, other photographers and stuff like that. But uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like I remember just this last fall, I was asking someone who I know really well, I was like, Hey, do you know the location of this, this spot? And he was like, yeah, but I don't know if I can tell you. And I was like, Really? Okay. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Unless you can like super trust that someone's not just going to bring a bunch of people to a location. It's like, I don't know, like it's, and it just takes one other person to find out. And then they tell someone and they tell someone and then they take a whole workshop there and it just, 
it just says it becomes exponential and i don't think people think of it that way you know it's almost like a sexually transmitted disease in some ways you know (laughs) like like yeah i just gave it to that one person but uh oh never mind (laughs) Mm. we are uh, going down a dangerous path there people sexually transmitted disease uh all right well let's uh let's shift gears a little bit um staying on the topic of waterfalls i'm assuming that it's um also one of your favorite um subjects to shoot so what i'm curious kind of what uh what tips have you garnered over the years that you can share with with other people about the best ways to capture a waterfall so the funny thing with me and photography and waterfalls is when I go out looking for waterfalls, I, you know, like I said, I had that tunnel vision sort of thing going when I was younger and I never really shook that. So when I go out specifically looking for waterfalls, I kind of get into this mindset where I'm going to document it and I don't really think about trying to portray it in an artistic way. I've been trying to shake that. Um, but I have surprisingly few pictures of waterfalls around here, anywhere, I guess, that I am comfortable putting in a portfolio mm. sort of thing. Um, now, not to say that I don't have plenty of experience doing that, but, um, yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of funny. I'm the waterfall guy and I don't have that many pictures of waterfalls. Brian Kibbins probably has way more pictures of waterfalls in his portfolio than I do. Well, that, that guy, um, he's pretty obsessed with waterfalls. He's. I love getting together with him, man. He gets. He gets super into it. Well, he gets super into um, pretty much everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess as far as shooting, the the things that I have kind of discovered through time, um, you typically think about like waterfall photography under cloudy conditions you know you want overcast you want even light um and i see a lot of guys who are not necessarily professional photographers or even serious amateurs but just people who are going out trying to take a good picture of a waterfall insisting on you know going on overcast conditions or going super early in the day before the sun comes up over the horizon and things like that uh you don't need to worry about that necessarily what you need to focus on is the relative position of the sun compared to the facing of the waterfall so if the waterfall faces north and you live well north of the equator so that the sun is transiting south of the falls as long as that cliff that the waterfall pours over is tall enough and you can get close enough you can be in the shade the waterfall can be in the shade and you don't have to worry about the sun or maybe you can even get a sun star over the top of it uh, that's one cool thing about the waterfalls in the columbia river gorge there's only about two months out of the year where the sun is far enough north that the falls are really impacted by bright, high-contrasty sunlight. Right. Um, uh, the rest of the time, the sun is far enough south that as long as you get fairly close to the cliff, you're out of that harsh light, and you can keep most, if not all, of the waterfall out of that harsh light for a pretty good chunk of the day. Yeah, and actually, um, like you were saying, you can get some really cool effects when the sun comes out. Like you can get, like you know, the sun coming through, like through the mist of the waterfall, which creates like a really cool effect. Yeah, and you can yeah. get rainbows. And um, the other thing I was gonna say is um, that kind of reminds me. Like I went down and shot uh, Lamolo Falls, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere down in southern Oregon. And uh, yeah. same thing. Like it was, it wasn't like I think it was like. 3 p.m. or something it wasn't like super early or super late and like the sun was out but it was still totally shootable so yeah man that that's I, that's great advice for sure because i think a lot of people do get stuck on like oh i have to do it when it's overcast or whatever so um yeah that's great advice man yeah definitely and uh and and kind of tying into that being able to read a map and uh especially being able to use something like Google Earth to pre-scout your locations uh, and kind of see, you know, maybe the cliffs around the waterfall are going to be super tall because you can see shadows being cast on the area on Google Earth, uh, at least when the imagery is clear enough to see that sort of thing. Uh, That can be really invaluable in terms of planning your outing 
and and figuring out the timing that you need to to adhere to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm a I'm a big fan of Google Earth. You know, it's funny. Um, on the uh, the the Patreon uh, bonus content I do for the podcast, there's a question I ask um, everyone to uh, recommend um, a technique, and like three people so far have said use Google Earth to scout. <laughs> It's because it is awesome. Like it's a great way to plan oh, yeah. your 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 shots. Um, what other what other tools yeah. do you use? Uh, primarily, I use Google Earth, but I have uh, so there's a a software suite called the National Geographic Topo, which is no longer available. Uh, but it's basically all of the USGS uh, one to twenty thousand. Topographic quadrangles for any given state. So I use that to build my uh, initial database for waterfalls in Washington and Oregon, and I'll use it for measuring trail distance and things like that. Because my GPS is older and it doesn't like talking directly to Google Earth, so I'd have to dump it into a program that oh, it kind of sure. recognizes. And the software that came with it is garbage. Um, yeah, man, I I used to use that same software for years for all of my mountain climbs and hikes, and and now I use a uh, Gaia GPS. Um, it's got all the same maps. It's actually got like those maps. It's got um, it's got the the um, Trails Illustrated. You can you can like bring in all these different layers um, to the to the system, and then. What I like about it is like you can use it on your phone. I don't even use a GPS device anymore. I use my phone in airplane mode and it remembers like you can download all the maps onto your phone. Like it's pretty amazing stuff. Like I'm surprised not more more people don't use it. I actually know quite a few people who have recommended Gaia. Uh, I use one called View Ranger. Oh, uh-huh. uh, I don't I don't use it a ton because uh, I guess I've I've kind of got this mindset of conserving battery life. I mean, the battery life of my phone's pretty good, but I I have a GPS, so I'm going to use the GPS when I can. Um, I've actually never tried hooking my phone up to the Topo software and see if I can load the place marks on there. I should see if that'll work. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, but the, if you have your KML files and stuff like that. Like, um, you can dump those all into Gaia GPS, and it'll pull it right onto your phone. Right, yeah. It's, it's, that would have been really useful super, in Colorado. <laughs> dude, yeah, it's super slick, man. Um, but yeah, part of the reason I, I go that route is just because I've got all this information about waterfalls already in Topo, so I'm just kind of married to using the older software. Right. Eventually, eventually I'll use something else, I'm sure. Um, you know, I'll, I, I save like KML files to my Google Drive, and I use that through, you know, my phone, and that works really well. Um. But yeah, those are those are the the two main tools, I guess, in terms of like actual scouting locations, route planning, and things like that. I'll do a ton of digging on the internet, um, just various hiking websites. Uh, we've got the Washington Trails Association around here, which is really really good for kind of scouting out conditions in any given area, seeing where the snow is and isn't, what roads are open, if the flowers are out someplace, things like that. Uh, so finding like a local hiking organization type website for wherever you live can be a really invaluable tool. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I use fourteeners uh, dot com. It's funny, like a lot of people uh-huh. post their trip reports and stuff like that, so you can see like conditions and and like trailhead access and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, cool. And it's unfortunate that there's not better resources like that for for everywhere you know if i want to look for information for i don't know alaska <laughs> i wouldn't know where to i wouldn't know where to start looking yeah you actually, know for me many neither. reasons <laughs> um so yeah you, you have to kind of you have to have some some good google foo in order to find what you're looking for if you're if you're leaving your local area i suppose right 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 no that's that's true um all right well Another topic I wanted to talk to you about, because um, I know we, we've talked about it before and it comes up on the podcast a lot, but I think you have some interest in it as well, is uh, this idea of um, the difference between like taking photographs as a, as a process of like stamp collecting versus 
um, a process of exploration and like wilderness exploration. So kind of what's your, what's your approach to that particular paradigm? Multiple things, I guess. (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't really have like a set conviction in that regard, I suppose. Uh, I'm not at all opposed to stamp collecting. When I went, the first time I went to Utah a couple years ago and I went to Zion, I got subway permits and did the, the narrows and all that sort of stuff, you know, and I took all of the pictures, the obvious pictures that everybody takes looking down the subway over that little cascade into the pothole and stuff. Um, you know, I, I took all those pictures and I had absolutely no problem, no reservations about taking them because it was new to me. It was neat. I'm a complete geology nerd. So like seeing those rock formations was super cool. But there are some locations that I just have absolutely no interest in going to or shooting. Uh, I've never been to Mossy Grotto Falls in the gorge. Yeah, it's honestly uh, now that it's, less impressive now that than it, it looks in photos. <laughs> oh, no, no. I know. Yeah, I know it doesn't look. I mean, it's only like 15 feet tall or something like that. But it's super yeah, pretty. Yeah, for sure. For sure. When I first saw pictures of it, you know, 10 years ago or whenever, when it kind of first got outed, uh, I was gung-ho on getting in there and i tried getting in there once and i ran into a thicket of poison oak and i just said fuck this and i'm out <laughs> um <clears throat> so but i haven't tried since and you know last year it burned up so i'm a little bit curious actually now to go in there and and finally see what it looks like after the fire just because it'll be different yeah because it's um it's kind of like a weird little um like box canyon so i'm curious if if it survived at all I, I think there's a chance that some of it might have survived, but the whole Eagle Creek drainage got scorched pretty bad from my right, understanding. Right, right. So we'll see. I don't know. When, um, but then other, you know, other well-known locations like, like Tom, Dick and Harry looking at Mount hood from Tom, Dick and Harry, pretty much everybody from Portland shoots that. And I have absolutely, it just doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I think I shot that um, like four times, you know, <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know, man. It's, it's an awesome view of hood. Like, um and there's i don't know the foreground is sweet like it's a pretty it's a pretty fun spot compositionally speaking but i i get it like i totally know what you're saying like there's lots of locations that that don't don't interest me a whole lot but um i think what's interesting about going to those locations is that um especially for people that are maybe not as good at coming up their own compositions is that it can be a good, um, it can be a good lesson in, in learning composition. Um, uh, that's, that's really one of my only defenses for quote unquote stamp collecting. <laughs> yeah, that I definitely agree on. And there's, I'm, I'm not at all going to deny struggling with compositions. Um, you know, I half the time when I, I go out and shoot, I'll set up on something and it'll look awesome at first glance. But then when I get home, I'll look at my pictures and I'm just like, Oh, this is is shit. What am I doing? What am I thinking? You know, and I want to throw them away and never post them or something like that. Yeah. That Um, happens to me. Like, so yeah, being able, being able to go to some of these places where there's kind of a, an obvious comp or a known comp where several people have shot it before. So you kind of have an idea of what to start with. Uh, it can, yeah, it can definitely help kind of guide you. And, and push you in the direction that you need to get something that you're happy with, at least if, you know, if it's not original, so what maybe, but if you're, if you're happy with the result, then that's, that's what matters, I guess. Um, but the other, the other part of that whole conversation, I guess, is especially in Washington. Um, there's just so much that people don't shoot. The North Cascades are, just they're they're absolutely untouched by the majority of photographers in this part of the country and you know if you go even in, over into idaho it's even worse nobody shoots in the sawtooths nobody shoots up in the um uh the bitter roots up further north um and and in montana too outside of glacier national park you hardly see any pictures from anywhere in the rocky mountains in montana uh so there's just so much around here that has so much potential and you, you know, 90% of the people will go shoot at Mount hood or Mount Rainier, or Mount St. Helens or the Olympic coast or something like that, where, you know, you see hundreds and hundreds of pictures of it. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that because it's, it's the low hanging fruit, but I like, I like to go out and find, you know, the stuff that hasn't been touched a little bit. 
Yeah, no, I'm the same way for sure. I mean, obviously, like, I love to go backpacking and explore the wilderness and stuff like that. And it's, I love the the creativity that it brings out, like trying to find different compositions in a place that you've never been and you've never seen anyone else shoot before. Um, that's, to me, like, that's the one of the funnest parts of landscape photography is, like, trying to trying to capture the essence of a location that no one else has necessarily shot before is it's actually quite challenging and um, fun. Um, also, it means you don't come away with necessarily all the same, like, glorious shots that people come to expect, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a much more rewarding effort, in my opinion. Yeah, especially if you can find someplace that's really compelling. Um, I'm 90% of the time when I go out to someplace that hasn't really been photographed before, I'll come away with something that's okay. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe it's good, but it's rarely ever like knock your socks off. Like, holy shit, I have to post this online right now. <laughs> you know, um, and that's partly because I just have the worst luck with light when I'm backpacking. I've got, I've had one, maybe no, two good sunrises in, you know, the dozen years or so I've been backpacking with the intent of taking pictures while I'm out there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I have similar bad luck. Um, unfortunately, it's I've I've had a couple of pretty glorious moments, but um, I would say seventy five percent of the time, same kind of thing, like crystal clear blue skies and, and yep. no clouds or whatever. So story of my life. Yeah, man, me too, me too. Well, I feel like like the North Cascades. Um, I was gonna say like I feel like the reason those don't get shot is because it's pretty tough to access. Um, unless you know, like you like glacier travel and, um, like that's pretty tough hiking from what I understand. I actually wanted to go so many times when I lived over there and I just never, never pulled it off, but, uh, it's not, it's not nearly as easy as like you say, like driving to the Olympics or going up to Mount Hood or whatever. Yeah. It's definitely really rugged terrain. And, uh, you know, I've, I've barely just kind of probed the edges myself I've done one uh, one trip that was six or seven days. I don't remember how long it was, where I did a traverse with uh, some non-photographer friends. And this was about, I don't know, 30, 32 miles over a week. And, you know, if you average out that, that distance, you know, we were traveling maybe three, three and a half miles a day. It was that it was that slow going because it was you know it's just it's brushy, it's rugged. You have to get around lakes and steep valleys and cliffs and stuff right, like that. Right, right, yeah. And and one thing that a lot of people don't seem to quite realize, like when you think about off trail photography, like you have to go and do some bushwhacking and get to a location. The the brush in the North Cascades is second to none in the United States, like maybe save for Alaska, but the brush in the North Cascades is so bad. It's just absolutely impenetrable. When you get deep into these valleys, it's just slide alder and vine maples higher than your head. And you can't put your arm through it between the branches. You know, it's that thick and it's just, it makes it absolutely impossible to go anywhere unless you are able to identify these high routes along the ridges and, you know, do glacier travel and, or maybe take a pack raft across a lake. Right. Like, like that. uh, what's that stuff? Uh, devil's club. <laughs> oh, devil's club is phenomenal. <laughs> it's just, you have to, you live up, you live in this kind of country and you have a, uh, a love hate relationship with devil's club. It's a really photogenic plant I've come to find, but, uh, yeah, I have, I have, uh, I have stories about devil's club. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my best friends lives in Seattle, and he, he he's not a photographer, but he does a, a shitload of rock climbing and ice climbing. And, uh, yeah, uh -huh. he, he tells me all the time, like, bushwhacking in the Cascades is, like, it's just insanity. Like, you get, like, thorns everywhere, and, like, uh, it's just, like, bushwhacking through a, a forest of vines. Yep. <laughs> if... If I come home from a hike and I don't have like doubles club thorns in my hand, <laughs> it's it's probably a good day. Right, 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 right. Well, okay, man. So, um, so you've you said you've listened to every episode of the podcast, so you definitely know it's coming. Uh huh. 
<laughs> so based on uh, the name of the podcast, FSOP Collaborate and Listen, uh, what advice do you have for other landscape photographers, uh, particularly um, uh, people that are maybe new to photography? Um, the thing that, that uh, this is going to kind of go on a tangent a little bit, I think. All right. Um, <laughs> so I've found that, that through my photography, I, I had to understand how I learn in order to kind of understand how I approach taking pictures. Uh, I'm, I learn visually. I can't like listen to somebody say, do this and this and this and this, and then put it together in my head and, and figure out how to do it. I have to like see an example. Um, I've always been kind of a bad programmer because I, I have to see code in order to understand it. Um, and in photography, it was kind of the same way. Like I, I would go out to these places and I'd shoot them and I'd set up and I was like, yeah, this is, oh, this is an awesome shot and come home and this is going to be so cool. I'm going to print it. And, and then I would look at it and it's just, oh, this is garbage. I'm terrible. Why am I doing this? So being able to look at other photographers who you draw inspiration from, uh, really became something that I gleaned onto. Uh, you know, guys like Mark Adamus and Noriega and Ryan Dyer. And I started looking at all their sort of stuff and, it started to put together in the back of my mind. You know, I see what they're what they're doing in terms of the composition here. He's so far off the ground. He's got this element positioned at this point. You know, so far away from the camera. And like, okay, I can I can kind of see how he's trying to put this together. And so I would take that and I would go out in the field and kind of keep that in my mind. And then also when I would go out and shoot with uh, other photographers I know, Trevor Anderson or uh, Jeremy Duncan and uh, Howard Snyder, the three guys that I shoot with most often. Um, I find that I will watch what they're doing and kind of say to myself, you know, is that, is that comp better than what I'm set up on right now? Is, is this comp really shit? <laughs> you know, I should go over there and shoot what they're shooting. Uh, and, and, and I found that that's, if anything, it's cathartic because you can, you can kind of evaluate what you're doing and, and question your thoughts uh, without, second guessing yourself in a way, I guess. Um, but just learning by observing from what other people are doing, I think is, is a hugely valuable lesson, uh, especially when you don't really know what you're doing in the first place. Uh, but yeah. even, even when you have a ton of experience, I, I'm still learning all the time. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not, nearly as good as many photographers out there. I get lucky more often than not. Um, so when I can, can pick up little tips and little pointers and little, uh, you know, quirks from other people that I know and I've shot with, that helps, I think. It really it really helps to clarify my intent and my thought process and things like yeah, that. Yeah, my, my photography definitely has improved by going out with other people and, and just kind of learning what they do. Even if, like, it's funny, like, they don't even necessarily have to be, like, someone that is, like, the best photographer on earth. I feel like you can pick up little tips here and there from all kinds of people um, with various levels of experience. Um, I think that's kind of one of the funnest things about, um, like, you know, like, like this, when we, like you and me and Trevor shot, like, you know, just talking about different equipment used for different shots and stuff like that. Like you start to think about things a little bit differently. You start to see things differently and just opens your mind up to different possibilities. So yeah, I, I think that's great. Yeah. 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 And, and a big part of that is because nobody's brain works the same as, anybody else you know you think differently than i do uh i think differently than some other person does so i'm going to approach a shot differently than you're going to approach a shot differently than you know mark adamus is going to approach a shot so that alone is going to give you some originality and some semblance of making any given composition your own but being able to adapt that process to what you see other people do is such an underrated component of the whole process yeah I think. man I, I i definitely agree um who who's uh who's someone that you've learned the most from <laughs> oh god i don't shit i guess i don't know i'd say early on it was definitely mark adamus 
just because he's he's so meticulous with his compositions. Um, lately, I've been shooting a lot of, uh, or at least I've been trying to shoot a lot of abstracts. Uh, and uh, Noriega is really really good at that stuff. So I've kind of been, I guess, uh, subtly comp stomping him in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, That's cool. I mean, except, I'm sure he doesn't mind. Yeah, well, he went and found three or four places down in Utah that I was eyeballing, and I told him he was a bastard for beating me to him. So he's a he's a cool cat, man. Yeah, yeah, I still need to get out and shoot with him. <clears throat> yeah, me too. Actually, I've, I've been maybe maybe one of these days. Yeah. All right, man. So, who would you want to hear on the podcast? Like, who do you think would uh, have something new to give to the? To the conversation you know the two guys that i really want you to get on here uh miles morgan and brian kibbins i think just because of their personalities they would be fantastic guys to have on yeah well um i've already reached out to miles and he's uh, about to schedule sweet yep and then brian kibbins i could definitely reach out to him he, he and i we used to be drinking buddies in portland so that would <laughs> That, that's not a problem. Okay, so he, he had to have some stories on top of having some stories then, so. Oh, dude, he, I don't, I'm, well, you listen to the Noriega podcast. Um, I, I told a Kibben story on that one. Yeah. Like, oh, no, yeah. Guy, oh, my God, he is, he is such a funny guy. Yep. No, I love going out with Kibbe. We went out and uh, we went up to uh, Mount Robson and, uh Tonquin Valley up in Jasper last year, and that was a that was a great trip. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. We were up in the Rockies with Bolino the previous year too. Um, two more names, let me give you two. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if anybody has suggested Arthur Stannis yet. Um, uh, I I don't think so, but I've reached out to him already. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's he's amazing. Yeah. I love his stuff. And then how about Jason Hummel? You familiar with him? I am not. Okay, so he's he's uh, local to the Seattle area as well, and he does more. I guess he's not like purely a landscape photographer. He does a lot of like alpine skiing and stuff like that. But okay, he has got some of the most mind blowing like mountain photography that you will ever see. He shoots a lot of black and white, um, and he shoots out in broad daylight. But he he does it in such an artistic and, and creative way. Like you'll have people skiing off cornices and the snow is just exploding around them with <laughs> jagged peaks behind it and stuff like that. His work is really, really great. That's awesome. <clears throat> I'll definitely check him out. Thanks for the, thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, it's been really fun chatting with you again, man. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to be here.